You're listening to episode number 24 with Willem Larson on the season two premiere of Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Guys, listen up. About every two weeks, another language dies, or perhaps a dialect. There are over 231 completely extinct languages, and 2,400 of the world's languages are considered to be in danger of dying out. And that's why today's guest, Willem Larson of the College of Mythic Cartography, joins me on the season two premiere of Ancestral Health Radio. Willem shares ways at how to look at story and language from an indigenous people perspective and how, if we wish to be heard in today's culture, the types of stories we need to build for ourselves. In today's episode, you'll learn how stories enrich and illuminate our land, the error of identity and the impact language can have on our perception of self, how American Sign Language can actually help you become a better tracker and storyteller, and much, much more. Willem Larson is the author of The Language Hunter's Kit, co-author of Five Rules for Accelerated Learning, founder of the Community Accelerated Learning nonprofit, Language Hunters, board member and instructor at Rewild Portland, director of the Thermodynamics of Emotion Symposium, and both a wildlife tracker and search and rescue tracker. Welcome, Willem, and thank you for joining us on another exciting episode of Ancestral Health Radio. It's great to be here, James. Thanks. Yeah, well, I thought it might be a good idea that we begin by opening this episode up with a little bit of your background, maybe telling us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today, specifically with the College of Mythic Cartography. It started about 10 years before I started the College of Mythic Cartography, where you might say uh, the the first blog post at the College of Mythic Cartography, and that's, that's what it is. It's a more or less a blog art project, uh, was in 2004. And then uh, 10 years before that, 1995, I uh, got involved with uh, the world of tracking. Mm-hmm. And uh, animal tracking and search and rescue tracking. And so I've been doing that for over 20 years now. And once you start looking at nature, of course, you look at tracks, you follow animal trails and people trails. And and you start thinking ecologically and that sort of zooms you out farther and farther. And you start to ask bigger questions. And um in the late 90s, I ran across Daniel Quinn's work, Ishmael, and devoured all his books and his oh, yeah. and all those great questions he raises about story and, and history and archaeology. And and uh, and so he was one one huge influence uh, of mine. And uh, around about that time, I started doing a lot of instruction and teaching uh, in the world of wilderness survival and nature observation and and then uh, language actually uh, another author martin prechtel who I, I don't think gets enough love he needs oh, more I'm not love. familiar with his work yes he's uh he's an amazing uh, 
teacher, amazing author. He's written, geez, probably a dozen books now um, with uh, uh, names like Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, Long Life, Honey in the Heart, Toebone and the Tooth, uh, uh, Stealing Benefacio's Roses. Uh, oh, okay. Just yeah, just an amazing series of books. Uh, he is a uh, a part Irish, part Austrian, part Huron um, uh, uh, kid from New Mexico. <laughs> his mother, okay. uh, yeah, his mother uh, was like the superintendent of schools. Uh, she's a Native American. Uh, she's where he got his Huron lineage from. Mm. And, uh, and so, and he had all kinds of adventures trying to reconcile these two major parts of himself, uh, this sort of European part, a native part, which, uh, so what's good about that is, is, um, the honesty and, and, and the, the, the clarity and the teachers he was able to find really illuminate a, a lot of the problems that we look at. And I actually... Uh, to be perfectly honest, I started the College of Mythic Cartography and did you know, podcasting and blogging and starting in 2004. And I didn't really realize uh, how big of an influence he was on me until I looked back. He was really the first person who made me look at language as a tool for uh, creating the world, you know, creating your 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 perceptual world, your social world, and actually your ecological world. And um, he's a really, really good guy. He runs a school called Bolad's Kitchen, which oh, okay. you know, maybe you I'll include. link to that in the show notes yeah. to all of those resources. If anybody's interested in that, definitely head back to ancestralhealthradio.com. Yeah. So great, great teacher. And so, um, um, and, uh, Along with uh, him, Daniel Quinn, also, of course, the person who's gotten me started in tracking was Tom Brown Jr. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, can you explain for people who aren't, because I, I don't believe we've actually mentioned Tom Brown Jr. very much in the podcast, if at all. Can you can you explain who that is for people? Yes. Uh, my personal opinion is, uh, uh, so Tom Brown is a very controversial figure in the world of tracking and, and, uh, that's that's a good thing to acknowledge. And uh, and as with many controversial figures, um, you know, they 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 have a huge impact uh, on 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 things. And so he uh, man, he, uh, he he got part of a book uh, that he was writing, got published in the Reader's Digest. I don't even know if the Reader's Digest is around anymore, <laughs> but it was like very popular periodical that a lot of people read in the late seventies and eighties. And it's the kind of thing that you would have on your toilet, you know, next to your toilet, you know, it's like that bathroom reading material. Okay. And, and he got a, he, uh, he got an excerpt published out of a book he was writing and that his, it was called the tracker. And I mean, really, I think he, he is almost single-handedly responsible for, if you would take a tracking class, um, the reason why, you know, it's even there, why it's even available. The, the, oh, wow. uh, so he's somewhat of like the grandfather of tracking, yeah. you could say. Yeah. And so that's not to say that there's, there's at the same time, there's all kinds of lineages of tracking. There's of course. border patrol folks like, uh, Ab Taylor and Joel Harden and, and, uh, there's military folks with roots in, uh, 
and Africa and Malaysia, which work with trackers. Uh, I mean, there's there's all kinds of lineages of tracking, but socially, culturally, what what mobilized uh, sort of the American, the Western culture, at least here in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I really believe is Tom Brown, mm-hmm. and even though some people, I, I've met many trackers who've now decided that you know. He, they they're not such big fans of him anymore or whatever they think he's full of bs and but i still really uh, you know identify I, with his teachings well i i hold both you know i i i respect him as a teacher and will always think of him as a teacher and also recognize that he's a he can be a you know a controversial figure and why is he so controversial by the way well so he's just i mean here we you know, the, we're going to keep coming back to this theme of stories, but he's a storyteller mm-hmm. <laughs> and he is an unabashed storyteller. And, uh, and, uh, in our culture, we, we have a certain view on, uh, what stories, are, you know, what, 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 when you speak, when you write, what's supposed to be delivered. I mean, I remember there was this big, uh, big, uh, 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 another big scandal about a memoir writer who wasn't getting all the facts right, or you know, people would come out of the woodwork and say that's not what happened, mm. and then had to re-examine what exactly memoirs are, and, and you know, what does it mean when you write a memoir? Is it an assemblage of facts, or is it is it the author's sort of a does it communicate an emotional truth? You know, and oh, okay. and and so Tom and, and and you'll find this in indigenous cultures too. You know, like well, did Coyote actually? have sex with you know beaver's wife and actually like right. well you know uh-huh. well, i don't know i mean uh, you know maybe you know but uh this this sort of like um literal mindedness it's like can can you both can you both take the story for what it is and then also the meaning exam- behind it yeah um so tom brown says a lot of things that it's like uh, hard to prove or true or maybe mm, okay uh, gotcha are true or or then surprisingly turn out to be totally true. And that was the thing you thought was the biggest bullshit. Right. And, uh, so, so I don't know. I, 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 I get a kick out of it. It's a pedagogical approach rather than like a, uh, you know, like if I'm reading a, uh, in a scientific journal, I'm expecting them to be straight with me. Right. But, you're, uh, you're expecting nothing but the cold, hard facts, right? Right. Right. Where a lot of, you know, he comes, you know, as he tells it, and he's, uh, my understanding is he's got still has good relationship with the Lip and Apache tribe that his mentor, uh, who was he uh, will tell is a, uh, was a Lip and Apache. Um, I mean, this is the tradition of storytelling that that he comes from. Right, a tradition of oration that basically we don't have anymore. Right, that's what you and I were kind of talking about before going live on this call was. Uh, you know, for many of us, we lack the mm, relationship and thus the story behind a lot of the things that have meaning to us, right? Yeah. So, so it's funny too, because I, I mean, I've always been a storyteller myself, and I I'll listen to a story sort of mutate as I retell them, and I'll I'll be confronted with this notion of like, am I lying? I mean, is this <laughs> am I telling an untruth? And yeah. I'm like, no, no. I, what I'm telling is like, I'm finally getting at more deeply what it really felt like to experience mm. this, where the facts wouldn't communicate. 
the you story know, was even, evolving over time, right? Yeah, and even assuming that my one slice of what happened, I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's well known in the legal world, you know, how little worth eyewitness accounts are, even though we continue to rely on them. They just mm-hmm. vary wildly, and uh, perception is just very fluid. So, so I don't know. Maybe the only reliable perception is what it felt like to experience it. Mm. So you know what? Let's bring this back to the College of Mythic Cartography because that's that's a mouthful right there. Can you yeah. kind of can you kind of break down exactly what is the College of Mythic Cartography for people? Well, so the the the, the college uh, started out as this idea, and it's still something that I I I am pushing in that direction. That's just so. Uh, this might be apocryphal, but uh, again, another story about. Uh, things, how things came to be that might be more useful than what really happened. But uh, universities uh, come from monasteries, right? They're, they're, uh, that's their original source, you know, and where the, those were the depositories of knowledge, of mm. literacy. Of I was history. unaware of that. I, I was, I was not familiar with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, they provided this really important role, right? Even science, like, you know, brewing science and, and oh, agriculture. Right, of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So monasteries. So, so colleges, however, have this other track that, that, um, that what it seems like is that colleges came as, you know, the come from colleagues, right. And, mm. uh, may, they may have come from pubs, gatherings in pubs where it's like, well, you know, if you're interested in sheep breeding or you're interested in, you know, the history of this thing, well, we're meeting on, you know, Tuesdays or every afternoon or, you know, (laughs) at this table, right? So it's colleagues coming together to chat about stuff. And then that sort of sticks to, uh, sticks and becomes more formalized over time. And, and then that's where you get your colleges from. Hmm. So that's the, that's the more or less uh, bullshit story. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 definitely. And so, I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I, I did hear this and I'm, but I'm, you know, also open to, you know, you know other versions of, of the lineage, but, but so, so what I love, what I love about that story is that, uh, that the knowledge, I believe, you know, all really useful knowledge, uh, comes from the people applying the knowledge, doing Absolutely. the living the life. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have the greatest insight, you know, uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of higher academic stuff, you know, ends up being like turning the lens back on the people, you know, you want to chase down folklore or language, or now you've got to go back into the villages and dig up all the old stories about, you know, heritage breeding and, you know, like all these old skills, how to make this color for dyeing or that. And so there's an incredible amount of knowledge that was that the people carried. Right. Mm-hmm. Some of that was in master apprentices traditions and some of that was just held communally by the community in this sense of colleges. Right. So so my my sense that uh, one of our what our culture has been doing for a while is like externalizing authority into these universities, into religious institutions, into governing institutions. Uh, and uh, the the college uh, was this idea of, of looking to the village for our authority and expertise. Mm. So that's, that's the college part. So the, the mythic part is uh, the idea that, uh, that story and history and knowledge are, and and uh, why we're here uh, are all 
massively entangled. So, so, and that's that those are our myths tell us what is worth knowing, what questions are worth asking. I mean, we have, you know, America is rife with modern myths and you can see people enacting them. And, 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 uh, so we, it's not something we can get away from. I mean, to this day, I hear people talk about, um, you know, whether or not you believe in evolution, like evolution is not, you know, scientific theories are not something you believe in. Right. But we talk this way all the time and we'll fight tooth and nail. Um, that's like, well, you can be shocked by someone's willingness to, to not, not benefit from scientific knowledge, you know, but, uh, but, uh, and maybe that's the belief that, that it, that it has benefit or doesn't have benefit, but there's no way to like an, an, the best explanation for a set of, of observations is what it is, which is what evolution, of course, evolutionary theory is. It's just, man, come up with something better. Good luck. You know, it could happen. Not, you know. It's true. Absolutely. And, and so in a way, like every creation story though, uh, can be seen as, uh, an honest, uh, attempt to explain while at the same time bundling up our purpose for being here and, and layering it all then. And so myths become these holograms where science, which, you know, purports to only be, uh, to only be a strict, you know, sober minded, uh, analytical explanation for the facts is actually is indeed hiding some some other things in there. There's some mythology about materialism. Mm-hmm. Some uh, mytho the what what is called a, a metaphysical understanding. If you look into the study of science as a practice, there's actually a field called science studies. You'll look at all the biases that are embedded in in the questions we choose to ask, just there simply are, because we choose to ask. Of biases, absolutely. Right, but then now that doesn't mean that. You know, we didn't observe what we observed, although there's there's a whole other thing going on right now called the reproducibility crisis, which they're finding out that in the social psychological sciences and medical science that hundreds and hundreds of uh, research studies, people have tried to reproduce and and been unable to because, um, well, for the various reasons, you know, that it may or may not have what the researchers originally concluded may not have been a valid conclusion or it may have been a valid conclusion but they just made it too difficult to reproduce uh hmm. what they observed and so it's like you're kind of like wow science uh there's a corner of science that even now is reflecting on wow are we what have we been doing so so I, it's a really powerful thing to look at your stories to to look at to be honest and to not hold yourself whether you, you know whatever corner of the mythic universe you're from above other people and their their mythologies because all of us can stand to look at our blind spots right and so when you say mythologies it is almost like you're saying our perceptions or our beliefs yeah i, I the i mean in a sense of story is how we organize our perceptions mm-hmm. and then of course there's a feedback loop there and and by having a story you'll find that the our environments reflect that story back on us. Mm-hmm. So the story of civilization is going to cause me, a human being, wherever I'm at, I'm going to start seeing buildings and streets form around me. I'm going to start seeing mm. uh, hierarchies of power form around me. 
uh, helplessly because I'm in that story. I can mm-hmm. flee to Alaska. I can flee to Siberia. I can hide in the Amazon. And what I'm going to do is recapitulate on whatever scale with whatever uh, resources I have. I'm going to recapitulate that that story, which is why yeah, wilding. When you right, said yeah. that, it brought up a, actually a story or or something that I read from a book from a gentleman named uh, Noah Yuval Harari. He wrote a book named Sapiens, and yeah. he says that there is a huge mythology in place here in the Western, well, actually in all of the world, and it has to do around currency or money, and the oh, yeah. idea that money is simply a way for strangers in a world where we are completely overpopulated to successfully organize with one another because without that we wouldn't trust complete strangers so it's this idea that this piece of paper just Mm -hmm. this simple piece of paper is not necessarily a way to just exchange services but is a way to kind of communicate um, and organize and work together with somebody outside of your tribe who is a complete stranger which um, you know in hunter-gatherer society typically would have kind of been a difficult thing to do, right? So, Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's an excellent, excellent observation. I mean, I think you, uh, Daniel Quinn wrote that, uh, I mean, he felt like the law, uh, laws of Hammurabi, uh, you know, our first, first legal document were created and whatever came before them was created uh, at, uh, you know, as an intertribal resolution system because every tribe has a perfect system mm-hmm. a legal system for its members that everybody is deeply happy with right it's it's an extremely satisfying um uh, original legal system wherever you go if you you know speak with indigenous people they're on the whole pretty darn happy yeah. with with how they resolve issues but uh, but then you get a bunch of tribes together and it's like, well, who gets to marry who and what do you do when mm-hmm. you, something gets stolen and what do you yeah. do when someone gets hurt? Oh, well, we need uh, some kind of glue to glue all these tribes together. And so we'll have this extra we'll have this legal framework that is between tribes. Mm. So, you know, within a family, you don't call the cops, you know, unless, of course, you know, the family's falling apart. And, but, you know, somebody doesn't clean their room, you don't call the cops. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. You know? um, and even if your kid, like, sets fire to your shed, you know, like, you don't call the cops then. But if the, your kid sets fire to your neighbor's shed, then then we might, you know, then the cops appear. Um, and so it's, you know, what, what, whether the, this, this legal framework that we came up with is satisfying or not, it's the one we've got. And, uh, and it is, yeah. Yeah. So I like that money is the exact same way. How to glue together the fact that, that, uh, that it's, we are trying to create this larger organism. That yeah. is a- and, and you know what, it's funny without these stories, you know, and these relationships, it's in these mythologies, at least a yeah. shared mythology. I feel yeah. like it's such a huge barrier for us to fully rewild or fully reach that, that level of ancestral health that we're striving for because um you know in several other documentaries that i've watched also that you know one of the biggest and hardest things to do for people coming from a domesticated society hierarchical society going into something that is more holistic is always their own barriers or their all always their own baggage 
that they bring to the table. It seems like it's never necessarily the skills that they have to learn in the process. It's usually yeah. the 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 emotional struggles or the language barriers. Even you know, in, even if they're you know of the same backgrounds, you know, um, oh yeah, ethnically, yeah. socially, everything. You know, yeah. they still have a hard time kind of breaking down those those barriers. You know, those um, that baggage that they bring from modern world. And that's, that's something that, you know, I really want to delve into uh, for myself and for the rest of the ancestral health radio tribe is really find those leaders that can really organize those thoughts on how we can use story to unite us as, you know, kind of a people again, you know, create a, a unified mythology around something around like, you know, let's say nature and Daniel Quinn, if you yeah. have any, any of you have read any of Daniel Quinn's books, that's kind of essentially what he does. And, you know, how do we, we create these stories for our children and how do we create, you know, this oral tradition again of um, passing down this extremely important indigenous, you know, information, I feel like, you know, things that allow us to live sustainably on this planet. And yet nobody's talking about them. Nobody's creating these new stories for them. You know, they'd rather go to a, a retreat and learn friction fire, but then, right. you know, and maybe they'll sit a couple hours around the fire shooting the shit, but for the most part, they're not having these type of conversations, I feel like. So it's really important. And I'm really happy to have you on the podcast to really kind of break down the importance of storytelling. So thank you, Willem. I, I always appreciate that having people on like yourself. So yeah. Can oh, you no, tell us, yeah. can you tell us more about that then exactly the purpose of the college of mythic cartography and exactly, you know what you only got to mythic, excuse me. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to rush you or anything. Please tell me exactly the rest of that story. What, what is the cartography uh, portion of that? Yeah. So, well, so just to wrap up that bundle, the, the cartography of course is in the modern world, we think story can be more or less unmoored from place. Uh, you know, there's still Christians who, you know, are, are excited about visiting uh, Jerusalem and uh, but there's also Christians who feel that it's perfectly possible to enact Christianity and never, never go there. Right. right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's maybe, you know, um, so the cartography part of the College of Mythic Cartography is the particularity, the place basedness mm. and the fact that in the end, it's always comes down to the land. Yep. Right. And um, and so. With all those, all those pulled together, you know, uh, colleagues uh, coming together to talk about story and how it illuminates and enriches and the land that we live on mm. uh, is is really the purpose of the College of Mythic Cartography, and that that's a beautiful message on, right there. Yeah, that touches on language, that touches on actual skills, like you're saying, friction, fire, shelter building with natural materials, basketry, like, uh, Peter from rewild Portland is so skilled at him. Uh, yeah. You know? He's been putting up some really good work lately too. Yeah. I mean, these, these things can be beautiful and they can be just have pregnant with story. I mean, the friction fire kid is like, I mean, it's, it's a little world maker. You That's know, very the, true. Like, where did you, where did you get this? Where did you source that? Yeah. Not only that, but the, I mean, Absolutely that. Like, I don't want to skip over that. Yes, the, the, the origination of each of the parts, the, the woods, you know, and why you pick that wood, why this is the hearthboard, why you pick this wood as the spindle, what you're making the, the cordage out of. 
you know, oftentimes natural cordages, you know, they'll they'll break. You know, it's difficult to make them strong enough. So sometimes you use like a boot lace or mm. you know paracord or something. Yep. And it's like your decision to to have one element in that that you know ancient tool to be a modern element. Uh, it's not a failure, but it's telling a story um, about about the whole about you and your relationship to the land. Absolutely. You know that hearthboard you know, is, is, you know, in many ways, the universe, the, the notch and the hearth board is, is the earth is your actual, the land, the spindle is the, the axis of the spinning of the earth, the, the, you know, the, the cord, the bow are the relationships that hold us together and the forces that keep things moving, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. every, every single tool that we make, uh, originally, you know, close to the land, what you might call primitively, which mm-hmm. is actually a kind of a cool world word. I like it. I just don't like its connotations, but primitively is well, in its it modern makes, context, right? For sure. Right. But as, as prime and primal and the first way and the, you know, uh, the original way I, I like it. And so in that sense to make these tools primitively, and to work towards making them primitively, which you all, you know, sometimes I use artificial sinew for my projects and, uh, it's still valid. And, and, uh, and they're, each one of them can be like, really like dripping with the story of where all their parts came from and what that, and what they mean to come together in the way they do. And the uh, language of, of how you say it as well, too. That's the one of the big points I was getting as you were you were mentioning about the bow drill and, yeah. and that beautiful, you know, the choice of words that you used um, yeah. really kind of spoke to me. And that's something that, you know, another thing, you know, I'm a huge, for me, I'm, I love words. Like, yeah. I just love words. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like Louis C.K., <laughs> one of yeah, my yeah, favorite sure. comedians. You know, he says yeah. something really inappropriate, you know, a word that's pretty inappropriate that I'm not going to mention on air. But he says, yeah. you know, they're just round and juicy. And they, it's like they have chocolate on the edges of them. And I just want to know about them. And I yeah. feel that way. And the way you, you, you know, you communicate words and the certain type of words that you use can really resonate or, on a vibrational level to someone to where oh, yeah. it can change that mythology or that that story for someone rather than if you're just using the type of language that you grew up with or that you're accustomed to um you know a typical modern speak i guess you could say but if you're using more beautiful language um and identifying it with the earth and with what you're doing in the moment it has so much more of a profound impact right yeah absolutely i mean even the 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 structure of language too like uh, so this is one of the these things I got from uh, Martin Prechtel originally, but as it turns out, has roots uh, in the deep in Western philosophy in North America. The this idea that uh, modern languages, uh, pretty much universally, have a verb to be, what is called a copula, mm. um, is where you can say this is that, right? Uh, the leaf is green. Mm. I am a farmer, and so there, um, and indigenous languages uh, quite often uh, do not have a verb to be. Mm. And even when they do, uh, and what you'll find is they still make everything into a story, which is what you're forced to do when you don't have a verb to be. Um, So this could be a practice that we could actually use for ourselves, huh? Well, as, as it, 
as it happens, there's a, a group, uh, uh, an organization, um, a movement called the General Semantics Movement oh, okay. that I believe started in like the 20s or 30s. And there, there is this uh, fellow, Alfred Korshibsky, I believe is how you I'm pronounce I'm going to have to get you to write that name down for me to yeah, put in so the show notes. Famous. Yeah, I, You probably heard this saying. He's famous for the saying, the map is not the territory. Oh, right. The map is not the territory. I believe I have heard that said somewhere. Yeah. Well, so I find this a really compelling notion because, you know, this has to be true because a, maps are useful to the extent to which they leave things out. Right. So they are insightful about what they leave out. A perfect map, one could say, like a map with all the details left in of mm -hmm. the universe would be the universe. Right. So what what we are uh, oftentimes we talk about like the cognitive failures of the mind you know the cognitive you know and and humans and and the um, the illusions biases but the thing is is we are really skillful maps of our lives we are embodied maps uh, i've heard trackers say that if you looked inside the mind of a rabbit you would see every trail the rabbit had ever been down hmm. like that's that's who we are we are what we do, where we go, what we experience, and not and not what we haven't experienced, where we haven't gone, right? So anyway, that's that's a little side thing. But the but the general semantics folks got really curious about this idea that uh, I believe it was Aristotle who said that you know the copula creates these errors of identity. So um, I actually work in the world of software, right? I do software development. Um, does that mean I am? A software developer? <laughs> no, absolutely right. not. Right. Well, but but that's what we—that's English. That's correct English. So, and if you look at somebody and um, uh, you 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 know uh, you say, oh, he is he is uh, he is skinny, right? Um, and then the, and then you see him a week later, and like what they've gained weight or whatever they're working out, or and it's like, well, so is is has this connotation of like for all time you know this it's a way to make like uh, it's permanent you just stamped it it's a yeah it's a it, there's some people who feel like uh it's like a religious verb right and and mm. actually another possibly apocryphal story but but uh my understanding is is that hebrew i do a, i've done language revitalization work course through my nonprofit language hunters and explored a lot of indigenous languages and uh, one thing I heard was that Hebrew had a verb to be, uh, but it was only used in religious context and ritual, right? Then uh, with the, the foundation of the state of Israel, Hebrew, there's a huge project, uh, brilliantly done actually by a fellow named Joshua Fishman, who's influenced uh, endangered language revitalization uh, really deeply uh, because of the successful project of bringing, making Hebrew a secular language rather than a religious language hmm. and then of course but one of the the things about hebrew as a secular language as a verb to be right so so um you know the uh, my understanding is that originally hebrew the verb to be was only used in ritual context and might have even ritual only been used ceremony to, yeah hmm. around god right and if you think about like the power of the verb to be it's like it it makes it gives weight to what you want to say and i uh so the general semantics folks act played with this idea um, with what if we had English without the verb to be? How would that work? And they called it E prime. So oh. I've been blogging 
and E prime since 2004. If you look uh, at my blogs, you won't find a verb to be, you know, <laughs> is so cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, might find one here and there where I, where I've gotten Slipped sloppy. Up maybe a little bit. Yeah. yeah but, but the, and the effort, I mean, but this that's is like, the purpose, right? This is, and it's, I don't, I actually have tried, you know, uh, speaking without the verb to be, you know, here and there. And it's, it's an amusing, you know, hobby. Uh, but I don't, but it's not something I, what I try to do instead, uh, the opposite, the real opposite of the verb to be, as I mentioned before, and as indigenous languages know is story. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, I find it amusing and that, you know, an imperial mindset, a modern civilized mindset sees a problem and they're like, oh, well, we just need a scalpel and we'll cut that problem right out. So E prime is actually still contains the verb to be because it's decision because how it solves the problem. Right. But uh, but the problem, you know, is not is the problem of the imperial mindset, you know, that this this right. uh, It's not the language. Right. You could call it a domesticated mindset of mm-hmm. like a it's it is it is what you know, it is this urge towards black and white and, and to remove nuance. Right. So a, an unnuanced way of getting rid of the verb to be is to never use it, which as it happens in English, it's it's a very useful helper verb like I am walking. So you find yourself right. you try and talk and E prime or write an E prime. You're like, OK, you know, I continue walking. You know, or, or I enjoy walking still, you know, or like you, you find ways to get around these things. Um, but, you know, that's that's I would say that's I encourage people to play with E prime. Super fun. Uh, if nothing is like a writing exercise, if nothing else, I mean, that's it's it's I think it can improve your writing, gets rid of the passive voice. But, uh, but you know, but that's more, funny. That more you... than anything, it's a it's a it's about story. Tell a story, you know. Right. And that's extremely important because very few people tell stories at all, hardly ever, that I ever hear. And you know what? They do tell stories, but they're brief and they're short and they don't carry the weight, I feel like, um, I guess, the stories of of the past did. Yeah, and I I find myself apologizing a lot because anything someone asks me, I mean, as you probably already noticed, is I've got to tell the story of why and you know i've got to set the ground and and uh it's it's really funny you know like uh uh my father is a uh, is a retired construction electrician and when he tells you know he's gonna tell a story about he was at the doctor whatever and he starts telling you about the walls and like Mm -hmm. the distances and the joists and the whatever and the you know where the all the spatial relationships and you you know and i when i was younger i used to want to scream like i'm like just (laughs) tell me the point because that's that's our culture right just get to the point Uh Uh, but then as i got older i was like whoa now i know where i get it like (laughs) from you know he's got to bring you to the place he was at so you can understand the, the real, the, the hologram. Of the, the full meaning like, of what he's trying right. to say, right? Yeah, right. I mean, rather than the Moore's code, I mean, I have, I, another fun thing I've done is learned a lot of ASL and gotten a little bit fluent. And Oh, my girlfriend I've, really wants to get um, really, really proficient at American Sign Language. She's a, oh, uh, she's a, yeah. a teacher, a special, a special needs teacher. So uh, that's one of her, um, her summer projects. 
Oh, yeah. ASL is a beautiful, beautiful, full, rich language. It's not a part language. I Something mean, I want to speaking learn as a person who does, you know, works in the world of uh, language and linguistics and and I mean, this is a, a full blown language that that uh, and it's it's beautiful. I think it has a profound impact on the mind. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, yes, for sure. If you want to become a better tracker, a better storyteller, um, I think American Sign Language is a huge, rich research. And thank you to all uh, the deaf people who keep this language alive. Mm who our culture thinks of as handicapped and are actually people with superpowers, you know, who are forced, uh, but also gifted with this ability to see the world visually and, and tactily and go all the way with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And this, this language that they, they caretake. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, you, well, yeah. you know what? The, when we've only been talking about story as it relates to other animals or to the human animal. Right. Yeah. So there's a whole nother story or a whole nother side to this that we haven't even opened up yet. Right. So it's it's the idea of the original human code of spirituality, I guess you could say, or animism, the story of life, the story of yeah. all things being. You know, what do you have to say about that? There's this goes back to myth and the, and, and almost every tradition uh, of of storytelling. Um, I mean, really. I, you, every tradition of storytelling, you're going to find even modern folk tales, you're going to find somewhere a storyteller is going to say, okay, there was a time when humans and animals and birds, and we all spoke the same language and understood each other, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to, you're going to find this in Aborigines of Australia. You're going to find this in, you know, this the, is universal. You know, Africa, yeah, Native North America, you know, Siberia, Europe, old Europe. It's universal. We know this is true. And that there's, there's uh, these stories take place in this, like, original time, right? And there's a lot you can say about this original time. But, but I mean, the, the big secret that anybody who is a, a, a child of these cultures, you figure out whether consciously or un unconsciously as you figure out that that's that original time is just now it's like the deepest part of now right and this this original language is a language of of images of of feelings of even though the stories go on and they're you know animals speaking english and the humans you know speaking english or whatever the language is and but i mean really what they're saying is that you know the way we talk heart to heart with our pets, the way we talk heart to heart with the birds we see, the dreams that come to us, you know, really dreams are, are a nightly reminder of what the original language is, right? And how it works mm. and what you can learn from your dreams um, and how visceral they are. And, you know, it's funny talking about story. When you wake up, it's not a coincidence uh, for many of us, the compulsion to tell a usually unappreciative audience, the, the dream we just had, oh my God, you know, and this and that, and this detail and that detail, and the person's like, oh great, that's a wonderful dream. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, or, or but, you so, know, you get one of your friends and they, they say this quick quip, you know, cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
But so that urge, that human urge to spill our guts about the dream we just had mm. is is part of of the teachings of the original language, you know, that uh, we all speak. It's like we humans of as long as we've been humans, we've been telling each other our dreams. And when we in a healthy culture, we have an audience for that. Mm. And, and partially because we know someone else will listen to our dreams. I mean, I. You know, you look at the politics of the world right now, and I don't think anybody knows how to have a conversation with anybody, right? You know, I feel that's probably because we're so, we're, we're just, we're not connected enough, you know? We're not on this small scale, deeply intimate, interpersonal web of life anymore. We're more spread out and, it, you know, we're on this time constraint, you know, we got to get this done, you know, we have to do this now. Um, and you know, we're all on our own personal agendas and we all fall into our own habits and routines. And it's really hard for us to kind of break out of those. And considering, you know, you see the person next to you, oftentimes they're a stranger. You have no story with that person. Thus, you know, you, why am I going to stop to listen to this person in the first place? You know, when I have my own things that I'm doing right now, you know, it's kind of very selfish, but you know, with uh, how many people there are today, you know, it's not like how it was. So it's, it's how do we develop that kind of story? How do we build that type of story and still get people to listen? You know, that's that's the thing. I just and I keep thinking or reminding myself of um, there was a study that was done and they placed the world's greatest violinist inside of a busy New York subway station. And this violinist was playing his heart out in the middle of rush hour and nobody even stopped to listen to play him play him or her, I forget who it was, played the music at all. And that was simply because everybody was in a rush. And thus, you know, and that person is telling this beautiful, intricate story with this, this uh, musical instrument. And yet nobody even stops to listen. You know, that's kind of the culture that we're in. And how do we like take a step back and really, um, how, how do we nurture that? How do we build that? And how do we incorporate this into our lives? How do we use this idea of story that you're telling us? And how do we start building this into our lives, into modern day lives that can really make sense for us? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think you make a very good point that in the end, uh, you know, we, we come up with these ideas for changing our lives or we're influenced by something. And it makes us want to run out into the world and and I actually, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for all those people who were moved by that violinist, but didn't feel, felt under such uh, overwhelming pressure that they just shuffled along and continued on their way to work or to get, you know, get a meal or whatever it was, meet a friend. Um, you know, these things all start in our homes with our family and our friends, mm -hmm. or they that don't start at all, yep. right? And I'm not going to listen to somebody else's story, you know, given I'm a normal human being, I'm unlikely to listen to someone else's story until my own story is heard. Mm -hmm. So what we could do, the very first thing we could do if we want to do anything is listen to someone's story and get good at that mm -hmm. and ask for stories, not for facts, not for data not for justifications, uh, not to defend our own, you know, but if we can get good at just letting someone else's story move through us, we'll get our own stories heard. I have found. And, uh, and then the, the pump that needs to happen, that is a natural human pump will happen. And we'll be able to stop for that violinist 
because we're slowly, you know, this is a this is a cultural act. Now, this isn't a uh, spiritual act per se, although I suppose you could call it that. But then that tends to call in American ideas of virtue and mm-hmm. flaws. And it's like, no, we're creating a culture brick by brick. And we're creating a culture worth having. And and we've got very little to go on and very little su- support. So the least, the smallest things we could do for each other are will have huge consequences. And if we keep building on them, you know, little by little, they'll become, you know, we'll be what ancestors worth descending from, you know. Uh, well, that's the point. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, I mean, man. that's the legacy I want to leave for my my children and my my grandchildren, at least. You know, I, that's that's the point of this podcast. It's the point of what I'm doing, and what I'm sure what you're doing is that you know you can pass on that lineage, that that tradition, that story of um, you know trying to be more connected with the earth, more more in tune with the cycles of the earth, and how we can use the earth and its many many stories to kind of, um, I don't know, recapture, recapture a little bit of ourselves. You know, there's, there's this little bit of something that we've lost. And, and I like bringing all these ideas and pieces together because, you know, our, this idea of health goes so far beyond the idea of simple nutrition, you know? Oh yeah. It goes so far beyond. Um, so, you know, the blue zones, think about the blue zones, for example, and these blue zones are, Areas, if the audience is unfamiliar, these blue zones are areas around the world where typically the residents live beyond the the age of 100. They're centurions. And they come to find out that there are some similarities between all of these people. But one of the main differences and one of the big big differences between these people and, and, and typical modern people who, who are affected by a lot of these um, evolutionary evolutionary mismatch diseases that we are always talking about on the on the podcast is that they build extremely strong relationships and again when i say relationships you know this builds into story so uh, it's it's i kind of use those two words interchangeably story and relationships because that's kind of how i feel we've lo- we that's one of the biggest things i feel that we've lost our ties to and something that we need to build upon our, our stories and our relationships to one another. So um, I think we covered quite a bit, Willem. Um, is there anything that you think, uh, and I would like to keep this conversation open and invite you back on to another episode to con- continue this because there's a lot here that we could just, you know, we could dive into a lot, lot more of this and I'd like to have you back mm. on. But is there something, you know, we're, we're running a little short on time, but is there anything that you think that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Any any parting piece of advice that you think they could take action on immediately after this show? Well, um, there was one piece that I wanted to mention that, you know, one of our stories, you know, there is one urge to jump whole heartedly into indigenous uh, traditions. And that causes this issue of cultural appropriation, right? Yeah. That appropriate mm-hmm. their ceremonies, appropriate their language, you know, I'm working in endangered language. I've seen people, uh, seen uh, an endangered language spoken by more white people than the native people. And what is that going to do? That's going to change the language as we know. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer going to be indigenous. Yeah. It's going to be spoken with modern minds. Um, so one of my projects, which, you know, I can, I'd be happy to talk more about, uh, again, as you mentioned some, some other time, but is to embrace the fact that we were raised in the culture of science. 
And so what would it mean to to look at science with an animist lens? Mm -hmm. and, um, so there I've I've organized a conference around this. Uh, it's called the Thermodynamics of Emotion Symposium. And it's actually based on um, real cutting edge science. Um, one of our guest speakers, his name is Adrian Bijan, and he's one of the top 100 cited engineering uh, authors uh, right now in the scientific literature. Wow, and, nice. and we're going to talk about how the fundamental organizing force of living systems is emotion and how all living systems, which, you know, in the end, that includes what we think of just simple material reality like rocks and, and rain and wind and, and uh, you know, solar wind included. Like it's all a living system mm -hmm. because it all is, is uh, subject to this organizing principle of flow and how flow flows configure themselves. So, you know, I encourage people as they explore this um, – you're, you know, you're, you're certainly welcome to join us at the, the thermodynamics of emotion symposium in October, but, but, uh, whether you could make it or not to think in terms of like, how do I embrace what I've got and metabolize, you know, where I am and not try and snip things out, but, but tell stories, listen to other people's stories, um, uh, stand in this place where I'm standing now and, you know, animate that become an animist under those conditions not you know wishing i lived uh 200 years ago or 500 years ago i mean honestly now i've come to believe that this is the probably the greatest uh time to be alive ever for a human being I mean, oh absolutely have, without a doubt we have more demand for heroes and heroines than at any other age <laughs> that humans have been alive the most toxic uh uh, era ever. And it's such a double-edged sword, right? It is, but and so we're needed, and um, yeah, so we need we need our storytellers to wake up and start doing the work. Right. Well, thank you, Willem. That's it's an important message for people to understand, and I hope that all of you all of you took notes and you and you listened to exactly what we said here about building store, and it's something that I continue to develop myself. And my own personal story with ancestral health continues to evolve as I continue my path. So um, there's a lot to take away from this episode, and I hope that we can, again, have you back on to really delve deeper into the thermodynamics of emotion, because that sounds really interesting and something that, um, uh, you know, again, not many people in this field, I think, are really examining or talking about or viewing as this kind of aspect of health, you know, this this relationship to our story and our relationship to the story and the land. So, uh, Willem, Absolutely. thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that concludes today's episode. Again, I'm James, the hairless, a Broderick. Uh, thank you, Willem, for being on yeah. today's episode. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah thank um, you, James. This is, uh, James Broderick and Willem Larson signing off for Ancestral Health Radio. Guys, remember, take a walk on the wild side. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at ancestralhealthradio.com. Yeah.